good thing about Indonesia is it's, it's very free now after the Suharto period. There's freedom of the press, there's freedom of speech. Also, unfortunately, it means there's going to be freedom to hate. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. That was the voice of Richard Borsik, veteran journalist, longtime resident of Southeast Asia, and a leading expert in Indonesian political economy. I met with Richard on a Sunday afternoon in the living room of his quaint flat in Singapore. We first met in the early 1990s when both writing for the Asian Wall Street Journal. From my high-rise, fast-paced outpost in Hong Kong, Indonesia back then felt like a sleepy backwater, better known for its plantations and fishing villages. Still, it was a nation on the rise. For 31 years, President Suharto ruled the country with an iron fist, and not until a massive financial crisis in 1997 exposed his regime did he lose his grip on power, opening the way for free elections. With the rebound of authoritarianism in many corners of the region, Indonesia remains resolutely democratic. And voters, all 195 million of them, take this privilege seriously. In mid-April this year, almost 80% of eligible voters took to the polls. So massive was this undertaking that it's expected to take a whole month to transport and count all ballots. I started off my conversation with Richard by asking him what so fascinates him about the sprawling expanse of the Indonesian archipelago. Well, uh, actually, it goes back uh, pretty well beyond uh, early 90s. I I came to Asia in 1974 uh, because of interest in China, uh, and I worked in journalism jobs in Hong Kong, but you couldn't get into China at that time. Uh, So I started uh, traveling instead uh, around parts of Southeast Asia and uh, took a backpacking trip across uh, Java and Bali, you know, the kind of thing that uh, young uh, people uh, without a mortgage uh, do. And uh, and, uh, Indonesia was grabby. Very little was known about it. Um, It uh, it had... uh, uh, diversity with uh, with big capital D in terms of uh, ethnic and religious and uh, all kinds of uh, 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 pluralisms to it and uh, uh, it just kept me real interested in the country and uh, luckily uh, quite a few years later 1987 uh, I'm with the Asian Wall Street Journal and an opportunity came up to be the Indonesia correspondent which I happily took and uh, stayed for 11 years until after Suharto was pushed out. Mm. And this has been a lifelong endeavor to keep tracking, watching, observing, commenting on Indonesia. You've even written a book on the subject. Uh, yes, uh, thanks. My, my wife Nancy Chung and I did a book on Indonesian business and political history. Um, uh, we reflecting our our deep interest, and not exactly lifelong. It didn't start till the twenties, uh, but uh, I I I have been in Asia now, forty five years, and the country that uh, that I find most uh, uh, grabby or intriguing. Uh, sometimes there's very good news. Sometimes there's very bad news. Uh, but uh, to to try to follow, uh, uh, yes, Indonesia is uh, my sort of main area. And we're at a another inflection point in Indonesia's 
modern history with the current elections. Uh, they took place on April 17th. The count still goes on. Uh, we're in the midst of our conversation before we have a final decision on, on who's winning. But so far, it looks like Jokowi uh, has, a, has an apparent lead on his uh, opponent. How is that looking to you? Uh, it's looking, uh, in a broader historical sense, uh, it's looking very good. And when I say it here, Steve, I mean the uh, overall election process. There are issues, there are problems, but uh, it is, a, to me, a towering achievement that now every five years the Indonesian people, and I mean like almost all of them, uh, go and directly have a say in who's going to be their country's leader. During the 90s, when I'm there, and Suharto uh, who was a real classic strongman until he uh, weakened sharply with the Asian financial crisis. You couldn't imagine during the, uh, the middle or most of the Suharto period that within six years of his uh, being uh, nudged or pushed out that you'd have a system of direct election. And just to put this into perspective for people who may not know Indonesia, we're talking about uh, a, an archipelago with 17,000 islands. Uh, in these general elections, there were something in the range of uh, 20,000 seats up for the legislature, 805,000 polling stations, and 245,000 candidates, I understand, which were, uh, which were vying for these seats. That's a massive a geographical endeavor. And I, I'm impressed that so far, we're not hearing a lot about uh, fraud or anything else. It seems to be going as smoothly as possible. Uh, generally speaking, that's exactly right. There are allegations of fraud. Uh, I haven't seen any credible uh, evidence or backup uh, for it yet. Uh, but the, the, the party who is well behind in the, in the partial count and behind in all the, the uh, credible, what they call quick counts uh, by private groups, uh, Prabowo Subianto, uh, he, he has issues saying, you know, it was stolen basically from me, which is the same thing he said during a matchup with uh, Joko Widodo five years ago. The, the logistics are astounding. Um, and uh, and this is there are no voting machines. These are everybody marks ballot, and this time it was the biggest one ever, both in Indonesia and we believe in the world, because people were were electing uh, uh, representatives of at five different levels of government down to local ones at the same time. So you had. Um, five colors of ballots, five boxes, and it is all done by hand. They are held up and marked on a whiteboard with uh, groups of, you know, five, like uh, we had in uh, elementary school kind of thing. Um, and uh, you, you may have seen uh, uh, some media reports that it, 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 it's such a gigantic undertaking that uh, maybe more than 150 poll workers have 
passed away because of the, uh, the, the work was so exhausting uh, or they were maybe a little bit older and not in good health and, and uh, these ballots are you know hauled across uh, rivers and uh, uh, moved from the most remote places. It's one heck of an exercise. And, and so much so that they've got another month of, of collecting and counting to go before an official announcement is made, is that right? Uh, before the, fi- the final announcement uh, from the Election Commission is due on May 22nd, um, the way the vote, it, it's very transparent, uh, the, the counting. Uh, every day you can see how many uh, ballots are officially counted so far. Um, I think they're trying to speed it up uh, so it will be out before May 22nd because of the uh, the kind of heat and uh, friction that uh, has been raised by uh, uh, by Prabowo uh, rejecting the result before it's in. So, Richard, let's leave the elections aside for a minute and talk a little bit about Jokowi, his first term. How did he perform in your assessment? He had significant achievements, but he also disappointed in some ways. Um, he made infrastructure an important part of his uh, administration and he's got some very good results to show there the Jakarta uh, first subway line is open and that uh, uh, that's a real achievement Uh, built a lot of airports more toll roads uh, improved port facilities this is all good um, and going to be important over time Uh, but he he couldn't deliver some of the things he promised, bigger picture things. He promised 7% economic growth. Not, a, not uh, uh, his fault alone at all, but he just couldn't deliver it. But 5% is not too shabby. 5% is not shabby, but uh, Indonesia needs more. It needs the 7 or percent or close to it, uh, especially for job creation needs. And not achieving 7% uh, in, in my mind is a very understandable uh, because like last year you had the Federal Reserve raising rates so much this, this takes money out of Indonesia instead of encouraging it to come in. But uh, that, uh, when that happens your government has to do more to attract direct foreign investment and Jokowi has a very mixed record on on bringing in private capital. He has largely uh, depended on uh, state spending. And a cornerstone of this campaign has been the creation of 100 million jobs. Do you think that that's achievable? Um, I really don't think so. Uh, and, and people wouldn't hold him up for that. Uh, this is uh, staggering. Uh, Indonesia needs uh, a lot more skills uh, so they can have uh, better jobs, better productivity. Uh, it has been losing out to countries like Vietnam that, uh, that have uh, uh, moved up the skill ladder more quickly and made more consistent efforts to bring in uh, foreign investment. Uh, Indonesia's done well, you're right, the 5% given global conditions and the US-China trade war and things, 5% is not shabby, but it's just uh, not where you need to be. 
I'm Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. When we come back, a discussion on how Indonesia's rising religious and sectarian divides could put a damper on the country's economic prospects. More in a moment. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. I'm Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. I'm in Singapore with Richard Borsik, veteran Southeast Asia correspondent and Indonesia watcher. Although it's too early to say for sure who will be Indonesia's next president, exit polls suggest that Joko Widodo is in line to win a second five-year term. Known by his popular name Jokowi, the country's sixth president has a lot to live up to and it entails walking a tightrope between sectarian interests and infrastructure funding. Let's get back to my conversation with Richard. There are certain issues that could scuttle his economic agenda, uh, specifically some of the religious and sectarian tensions that are growing in Indonesia. Um, are you concerned that uh, the divides that are apparent could actually impose themselves on his ability to take the country forward economically? Uh, th- this is the, uh, the, the million or billion dollar question, uh, Steve. I, I think that um, people... I don't want to make too much of sectarian differences. It's no good to pretend they're not there. It also, uh, I'm not sure it should be uh, played up too much because Indonesia has always had this. Is it being played up? Well, in the election campaign with the uh, flood of, uh, of uh, fake news uh, that comes out with uh, social media, uh, it sure can seem like uh, levels of discord and uh, sectarian conflict are rising. Um, but, I mean, the good thing about Indonesia is it's, it's very free now after the Suharto period. There's freedom of the press, there's freedom of speech. Also, unfortunately, it means there's going to be freedom to hate, too, for some people who... Uh, uh, and the, the level of nastiness you're going to get, uh, pretty much in, uh, in elections around the world, but in Indonesia, which is so multi-racial uh, and multi-ethnic, uh, multi-religious, um, uh, it, is, it is discomforting. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Indonesia's shown it's kept its balance a lot better than a lot of people thought it would. It feels a little bit like a rock and a hard place for Jokowi because as his economic plans seek to integrate the eastern islands, uh, the minority areas that are outside of the heartland of Java, where most of the people live, it feels like a little bit of favoritism, uh, like he's, he's throwing big projects, new airports, new bridges, uh, new roadways into, into that area. And, and a lot of people living in Java and Sumatra uh, who are primarily Muslim are saying, what about us? Do you feel like, therefore, there's a bit of a, a mix and match between the politics and the economics of what he's trying to achieve? Well, again, in most countries, there's going to be a, <laughs> a, a mix and match. Uh, he's, he's got a tricky balancing act. Um, 
uh, when when his friend uh, uh, the governor of Jakarta brought, was brought up on blasphemy charges uh, after uh, uh, the comments he made in 2016 a lot of people were disappointed that Jokowi wasn't out there saying he's not guilty this is nonsense I'm gonna put an end to it but he politically it would have been very difficult for him to do that um, he uh, it was just kinda like you had to sacrifice uh, this friend um, then uh, Jokowi further irritated people by picking a, a important Islamic cleric uh, to be his running mate or, as, or getting his, the cleric as his running mate. It was not Jokowi's first choice uh, because that particular cleric had had quite a lot to do with, with putting the, the former governor in jail. Um, uh, on the other hand, now with the election, the, have, the way it looks like the voting is coming out, people are going to say, if Jokowi had not taken the cleric, then he wouldn't have a comfortable margin of victory because the cleric appears to have helped deliver a lot of uh, Muslim votes, uh, especially in Central and East Java, mm -hmm. where Jokowi is piling up big margins. And so there, an overall better, uh, longer-term purpose is served by Jokowi getting back because he is at core uh, someone who believes in pluralization and, and, uh, and minority rights and things like that that people have been disappointed over his record on. But, but, but there's a real concern that there's rising influence among mus Muslim fundamentalists or at least Muslim um, uh, adherents uh, to the point that he would take a running mate on the way he did, I, and 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 therefore, I guess the rest of the world is asking the question: How seriously should we take the growth of fundamentalism in, in Indonesia, or is it something that we really shouldn't get too um, frazzled about? Uh, I think we should get uh, a little anxious, uh, maybe not uh, frazzled. Um, here again, uh, you know. Uh, the winner, is, uh, it's not a uh, bed of roses, okay? Jokowi could, uh, he wants to do a lot in the second term uh, in terms of leaving a legacy. He could also take the easy way out uh, or the easier way out and not uh, be, not try to push a whole lot of new initiatives um, and, and just kind of coast because, you know, he's, he doesn't face, he cannot come up for election again. He would have reached the maximum two terms. But hopefully he will, he will take away from the first term that more, not less, has to be done to uh, get up the economic growth rate so that people can get better jobs and therefore not be kind of uh, open to uh, uh, extreme Islamist uh, uh, ways and views. Well, that's an interesting subject, Richard, because, you know, as the recent Sri Lankan atrocities attest to, uh, the, the bombers were educated. Uh, they weren't necessarily the type of 
profile that we would have expected or have seen elsewhere, uneducated, disenfranchised, desperate, and therefore committed to taking their own lives in the name of Allah. This, that's not what was happening. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering to what degree the incidents in Sri Lanka might be influencing uh, religious tolerance in Indonesia. Uh, might it embolden Indonesian radicals or could it uh, otherwise give rise to greater secular vigilance? Uh, honestly, uh, Steve, I, I, I don't have a, uh, uh, a good answer to, to, or any real answer to a very good question. Um, uh, any uh, leader of any uh, fringe or, or extremist group, uh, political, religious, whatnot, uh, they need followers. Um, uh, and uh, the Sri Lanka case uh, is is real interesting and significant because of who were the leaders and the how many how much was done homegrown that people didn't expect. I think in in Indonesia, you have to have a lot more pushing of the of the successful national ideology, which is that we do not have a state religion. We do have uh, people should have belief in a, a god, a one god, uh, but how they uh, market or show it is entirely up to them. Mm. And Jokowi, I think one of the reasons he came kind of out of nowhere is not only was he not attached to the elites or the military that had provided leadership in Indonesia, but he, he was a real kind of figure of... Uh, uh, tolerance and and uh, and uh, believing that as long as everybody followed the national ideology, all will be okay. Um, again, the choice of the the cleric uh, uh, isn't really uh, uh, fit with that uh, so well. But I'd like to think that he will still see that this is Indonesia's strength. Mm. This. Uh, 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 slogan unity in diversity and you have to give uh, equal opportunities and equal rights to all kinds of groups. You, you know Richard I, I like you have had this um this fascination with Indonesia. I, I, you know, I, I go in and out, I spend time, I live there part-time, and, and I'm constantly uh, amazed and encouraged by the pragmatism of the Indonesians. They seem very, like very practical people at the end of the day, not ideologues in any stretch of the imagination. The man on the street. I know that's a very general statement, but that does give me some hope. Is, is that reasonable for me to feel that way? Yes. Um Yes, they are. They are practical uh, ideology, um, uh, which you've had in some past periods, is is not a, a big factor now. Um, back to Islam in Indonesia, just for a minute. Uh, a conflict with people who wanted Indonesia to be uh, an Islamic state or uh, follow uh, Islamic uh, courts, uh, rule, um, that goes all the way back to the beginning, back to 1945 when the uh, Constitution was being written. People who wanted uh, Sharia law to be the law of the land for Muslims, wherever they were in, uh, in Indonesia, 
they tried to get that inserted in the Constitution, and Sukarno pushed back against it and was able to, to block it. It kept coming up through the decades. Um, in, in our time, let's say the 90s, uh, in Indonesia, uh, political Islam was definitely suppressed by Suharto. Um, uh, but then the way the world was changing, he had to change too, and he started uh, uh, recognizing that uh, uh, a leader is going to have to appear to be at least somewhat Islamic. So 1991, he went on the Hajj, which he had never done, and he allowed the creation of a, a Muslim Intellectuals Association, uh, whereas before the state wouldn't do anything with uh, to support or encourage Islam. And uh, now, in the post-Suharto period, uh, yes, uh, it's been, uh, uh, you've had all kinds of influences come in. Uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, funds, we believe, from Saudi Arabia, the uh, Wahhabi uh, sect of, uh, of Islam. And uh, this, is put, this does put a strain on uh, Indonesia's traditional uh, unity in diversity. There's a, a I guess, 50% of Indonesia's 260 million people are under the age of 40. So there's this impression that many of us would have that a more youthful, uh, perhaps economically minded, uh, slightly more educated group of people might be prepared to uh, balance any religious views they have with the practicality of getting on with it. Do you feel like that's, that's a reality, or uh, is youth really not a factor in the future of Indonesia when it comes to being more Islamic? Uh, there, there's a lot of debate about this. I, I, I don't have a clear uh, view, uh, but uh, uh, youth is uh, obviously pivotal for all kinds of things. Uh, people talk about a demographic dividend for Indonesia because it has the ranks of young people that China doesn't have. But to me, that gets back to uh, economics and markets. Mm. You know, can you create really good jobs for these people? And, and then you, you mentioned China, and, and, and we've also mentioned infrastructure, and of course it brings to mind the Belt and Road Initiative and China's ambitions to deliver some of their capabilities to the Indonesians, but there, that comes with some political risk. Could you share with us some of your thoughts on that? Well, the... the Indonesia has a history of anti-Chinese uh, sentiment, uh, anti-China in particular, uh, after uh, the uh, disruptions of 1965-66, uh, which uh, uh, Suharto blamed on uh, China. Um, uh, I think the, there's kind of a little unfortunate convergence between Belt and Road and this year's election. Um, and yes, Jokowi has, uh, China has funded or is funding some projects. Um, uh, Jokowi or any leader uh, should be looking for funds from all kinds of countries. Mm. Uh, one of the big, most important uh, things that Indonesia needs to import is capital. You don't have uh, enough uh, state budget at home 
your tax collection is still very weak. So you need uh, uh, funds from outside, and here comes China saying, you know, we'll build this, we'll help with that. Um, I, I think because of all the flack that BRI has been getting, this helps Jokowi to some extent that you can kind of take prudent uh, Chinese uh, funding and not uh, kind of across the board uh, just dolloped out uh, big amounts. Um, and, and his infrastructure projects uh, are no small amount. Uh, for a $4 trillion economy, we're talking about a $350 billion infrastructure plan. Which is why, uh, to me, you have to uh, uh, find ways, How it won't be politically popular, but you have to find ways to get a bigger role for private capital. Uh, because the state doesn't have it, you don't want to rely on China for it uh, at all, um, but you want to have a diversity of sources of capital. Mm. What, are, what are your overarching hopes and concerns for Indonesia moving forward? If, if you were just to, to think about it, having watched it as long as you have, the long arc of history, of modern Indonesian history, what are the things that stand out for you or things to be vigilant or, or, or more, uh, more aware of than, than, than others? I think the, the most important long-term need is for building credible, strong institutions that you are still lacking after decades. Uh, an awful lot of in, in Indonesia depends on individuals, not on institutions. Um, the court system is still uh, almost wholly lacking in credibility. Uh, police, security forces, civil service, um, is um, still uh, can be pretty venal, uh, certainly inefficient. Um, the to me the 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 uh, when, when a, uh, it's good that Indonesia has now set rules, so the leader will only be there a maximum ten years, not thirty years, uh, thirty two years like Suharto was or. 30 years like a Marcos was in the Philippines. This is good, but you want somebody to be there long enough and intense enough to make institutional reforms. And, and institutional development is a part of any young democracy. Is it any worse or any better in Indonesia than elsewhere in Latin America or Asia Pacific, where uh, there's also, we're in their third, fourth decade of democracy, so still early days? Uh, frankly, I, I, I don't have the Latin America experience, so I won't try to compare. Uh, Indonesia's really, again, given that short time of democracy, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's done some impressive things. It's looking better to me than Thailand at the moment, mm. uh, after uh, the elections in the two places. Um, and uh, uh, much earlier, uh, Thailand was the place that was considered uh, well ahead in democracy uh, and, and institutions in, in Southeast Asia. Um, Indonesia's got the, got the resources. Uh, uh, the, some of them have not been used very efficiently. Some of them have, uh, uh, you could do so much more to tap them. Uh, 
but you, if you don't build institutions, credible governance uh, over a long period of time, <coughs> Indonesia will always be a place uh, uh, that uh, old joke says that uh, Indonesia has great potential and always will. Uh, if you're going to tap uh, more and more of that potential, you you need the the systems to do it. So, so if President Joko Widodo was sitting here right now, you would turn to him and you'd say institutions. Yes, mm. a- and and uh, remembering uh, unity and diversity. Richard, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. That was my conversation with Richard Borsik, veteran journalist and longtime Indonesia analyst. That brings us to the Asia Insider Minute, that part of the show where I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few questions of my own. Democracy, to some degree, requires putting on appearances. In the case of Indonesia, it compels Jokowi to both reassure his Muslim base while at the same time integrating island communities to the east. It's a balancing act, no doubt. If he gets it right, he could propel the country to new economic heights, introducing incentives for greater direct foreign investment, and in so doing, generating some of the 100 million jobs he's promised. If he gets it wrong, the nation falls back into slumber, or worse, turns divisive, fanning the flames of Islamic fundamentalism and eradicating much of the progress made since independence. In a country where 50% of the population remains under the age of 40, youth holds the key, both as a powerful voting bloc and also as the custodians of a more forward-looking, economically vibrant Indonesia. Of course, youth can go both ways. With better job prospects and improved economic output, Indonesia could begin to take its rightful place as one of the most important economies in Asia, if not the world. On the other hand, should the country fall on hard economic times, the youth might not be so forgiving. Indeed, they may prove themselves newly receptive to forms of religious extremism. And then what? In the meantime, let's pause in celebration of one of the world's most exemplary logistical demonstrations of democracy in action. Imagine, if you will, nearly a million polling stations spanning close to 3,000 kilometers of land and ocean. Now think of the 7 million poll workers from the island of Sumatra in the west to Papua in the east, who with nothing more than a wooden box, a chalkboard, and a boatload of conviction, collected, counted, and transported ballots with one thought in mind, a chance to determine their own future. To all you politicians in Indonesia, it's time to deliver. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.